So now it's time for me to introduce our, our speaker for the evening. Uh, when we knew we were acquiring these materials from the Snyder Collection and mounting this exhibition, uh, it seemed to me that, that Ken Finkel was kind of an obvious choice to help us think about them and, and shed light on, on what they tell us. As you'll hear from Ken's remarks, he's been familiar with many things that are in this collection uh, for more than 30 years, from the, the 70s. Um, and when I asked Ken for a kind of a pricey of what he might want to talk about, he supplied uh, the following. Thanks to the joint forces of digital conversion and social media, we've come to a watershed moment in how we encounter, experience, and share historical graphics. My talk will be an exploration of the Snyder acquisition and its potential. So I think we're, we have some interesting perspectives here to, to look forward to. Uh, Ken, as many of you know, uh, served as the library company's curator of prints and photographs from 1977 to 1994. Over those years and beyond, he's written or contributed to seven books and exhibition catalogs on 19th century uh, Philadelphia. Uh, Photogra photography, graphics, uh, and architecture. These publications include 19th century photography in Philadelphia, uh, Eastern State Penitentiary, Crucible of Good Intentions, uh, Captain Watson's Travels in America, which he did with uh, Kathleen Foster, uh, and he contributed an essay to the book we published on William Rouse's Pennsylvania Railroad photographs. Ken left the library company to become a program officer at the William Penn Foundation, uh, and more recently he served as executive director of WHYY's Arts and Culture Services, or service, I guess it is, singular. They only had one. And his on-air projects at WHYY have won two uh, regional Emmy Awards. Ken is now a distinguished lecturer in Temple University's American Studies program, and I was going to tell you what the title of his talk was, but I don't have to do that. So, Ken Finkel. Well, glad to see you all. I need to turn this on so we can be heard properly. Um, same old or new old. Uh, this exhibition, this opportunity to speak here, presents me with a chance to really think about the long view. Um, it... Um, it was um, 1977, more than 30 years ago, that I uh, started, although I started using the collections as an undergraduate many years before that. So uh, I've been in this building and, and upstairs in the print department many times, and thanks to the uh, staff then and the staff now. And the reason I came early as a student was the quality of the staff and its willingness to help and its knowledge of the collections. I'm going to talk about same old or new old uh, because I do really feel like we're on the cusp of something. We feel it every day. We hear about it all the time, but what does it really mean? And uh, being able to look back and to think about forward uh, where we're going, uh, I, I see this opportunity as particularly, and I may have to ask Erica for you to uh, Nicole, I'm sorry, to... Uh, this is really a, a, a tale of two Snyders. Um, and you, you don't necessarily have to spell it uh, that way. You could spell it the other way. Uh, and that's what makes this view even longer than 30 years. If we could have the next, please. Uh, it really starts, uh, or we could say it starts 60 years ago in 1949 when uh, Martin Snyder, Martin P. Snyder, published his... Uh, first article 
on the birch, on the birch views. And uh, I think many people, if not most people who know birch, know this article because of, it was this watershed moment in the information around, around it. Uh, but this was not at all the end for Martin and his uh, love of prints. In fact, many of the prints, if not all of the Philadelphia prints in the Snyder acquisition, spelled with an I, came from Martin P. Snyder's collection, and I was lucky enough to be there with Clarence Wolf um, and Jay Snyder looking through in Martin's uh, uh, apartment and looking through the storage areas and in the uh, spaces beneath the beds and in the uh, on the shelves in the closets and saw quite a bit that was just truly remarkable, the work of more than 60 years. If we could have the next, please. Uh, in 1979, I went back and looked at what uh, we wrote in our annual report, the library company's annual report. I had been here long enough to have my feet somewhat firmly planted. And uh, we, we started out the section on the print uh, report that year commenting that prints could be many different things. In the eyes of a publisher, their illustrations, students see them as pictures, museums regard them as objects, and scholars any of the above, and we like to think that we serve all those interests here. If we get to the next, and here we are in 2009, and uh, what I see is, is and uh, found was a, uh, this, a mention that this exhibition looks at context. And uh, if we could have the next, please. So with this 60-year arc, what can we see? What can we know? Uh, we could have the next. Uh, and, and, and the question really begs itself to be asked, where will we be in, two, in 2039? And, you know, I say many institutions, especially this year, are saying, where are we going? What can we go think about? How can we think about the future of our five-year plan is out the window. Well, I say the heck with five-year plans. Let's think about, for a few moments anyway, a 30-year plan. Could we have the next, please? Uh, Martin Snyder collected, but was that his real legacy? And this was the most I could find of an obituary on Martin P. Snyder. And I don't remember if anyone did see one. Uh, I'd like to, to read it, but um, it could be uh, that there is, and I missed it. In any case, the question is, what is his, what was his legacy? Next slide, please. Uh, actually, it's much more in the way uh, it was certainly in the collection. But those collections did not land in, nor did he intend them. He would have liked for them to be institutionalized, but they weren't. What his real legacy was that of having worked with these collections and others over the many decades. Between 1949 and 1964, Martin published an article in the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography about every four years. A remarkable career, uh, focusing on Birch, but also on Wilde and Breton. And there's uh, a case with uh, several Bretons from his collection in the show. Next slide. Uh, best known is his book from 1975, of pre-1800 Philadelphia Views, which uh, really is a classic in the field. And next, please. 
Um, and then he published himself the, in, in 1996, Mirror of America. The title of that book looks a little familiar, I'm sure. The title of the show is Mirror of Philadelphia. And he says in that book, this volume should be viewed substantially uh, as substantially completing the scholarly treatment of the early views of Philadelphia. Next, please. Uh, and he continues that it really uh, is designed to be a complement to uh, Wainwright's 1958 uh, Philadelphia in the Romantic Age of Lithography, his Martin's own City of Independence, and finally Mirror of America. And he said that uh, now the remaining gap is filled. Um, the work is complete. Next, please. And he could go on and do a paper, as he did at the very end of his life, on his uncle, uh, Herbert Pullinger. Uh, and that's what the P in Martin P. Snyder st stands for. Uh, and uh, uh, this was uh, sort of a, a side interest of Martin's all along. Next slide, please. Um, so the question is, what was his legacy? Was it the, uh, the Birch uh, work, the Birch collection? Uh, actually, this is uh, something that did not land here. The library company has an excellent uh, representation of the Birch, uh, uh, the Birch views. Uh, this one was estimated uh, for as much as 150, sold for a very hefty $80,000. And uh, I wouldn't say that that is the legacy of Martin P. Snyder, uh, even if it had been institutionalized. What is, next please, is the processed information that he put together over the years. And uh, it's not the prints, it's the way he organized it, the way he put together information. And if you go upstairs into the print room, you will find uh, at the very top of the first box of Birch Views a copy of this from the 1949 article uh, uh, listing all the different states of the Birch Views annotated according to the library company holdings. That was what my predecessors, Stephanie Munsing, Bernie Riley, my successor, uh, Sarah Weatherwax, have used for all these many decades to keep track of no one uh, has done work like this on uh, one Philadelphia group of, of images um, before or since. Next slide, please. And so, really, his legacy is about completeness. Uh, he uh, set out at the very beginning to fill gaps of information. He filled them. And uh, so I want us to think a little bit about completeness and what it really means. And we could call it comprehensiveness. But back in the 1940s, I think Martin was thinking it was uh, about ownership, but more intellectual control and the dissemination, creation and dissemination of information, metadata about this uh, these collections. And if it is achievable, and it is certainly achievable with the Birch Views, um, uh, it could be uh, a goal that's set and, and, and achieved. But uh, then we start to go into another type of approach. And I you know, put there in, in red, if we could go back 60 years, and set collecting priorities, what would we want to see, ha have them do? Um, my father once said, the worst mistake you'll make is the, are the things you don't buy. 
And uh, I remember being in this room, being offered things, thinking, hmm, I don't know. And I felt, felt every time I think about those moments, I, I, I was usually wrong. Um, that wasn't even stuff I talked to you about, John. Um, so how our concepts of completeness have evolved in 60 years, that's something I want us to think about and then to project forward. Next slide, please. One of the ways, and I'm glad to know that the Weitenkamp uh, list of American political cartoons is being added to, um, that was one of the ways we sought to be complete in uh, the many years I was here. Uh, before Weitenkamp, there are British, the British Museum has a list, a very large uh, series of books defining, um, listing the uh, political cartoons in, published in Europe, and this is one, and this is the sort of thing that we were adding over the years. It's very straightforward. You have it or you don't have it. Is it in the condition you want? Is it a price you could afford? If it is, you buy it. Your collection is therefore more complete. Decade by decade, it becomes more comprehensive eventually. Who knows, maybe it'll all be on the shelves and uh, the resource will be complete. Next slide, please. Uh, Nicholas Wainwright's list of Philadelphia and the Romantic Age of Lithography uh, had in it many, many prints. And, of course, this is the basis of uh, the new work on uh, Philadelphia on Stone, which is uh, in progress and will be, I'm sure, uh, a great exhibit in a couple of years, as well as uh, online publication. In 1979, uh, I, uh, it was about 79, give or take a year, um, there was a Bryn Mawr College book fair. This print appeared. Edwin Wolfe went out and uh, 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 before I could get there, and he uh, um, purchased this. And it's a variation of what Ray Wainwright had in his book. Therefore, we should get it. It's not just Wainwright. It's something that Wainwright didn't even have. And um, it, uh, I just love this one because it says uh, in German, the first lager beer brewery in the country. And uh, a few years later, when I got to write about beer history um, and create a following that I haven't shaken yet, um, uh, this, this image was what got me started on all of that. And uh, uh, so adding to the Wainwright collection, and then those that are not in Wainwright uh, has been uh, a way to become more complete in those decades. Next, please. Uh, working on the child's views of Philadelphia, uh, which the library company had in the finished publication, um, there's many, very many different ways in which these were issued in parts. And uh, next slide, please. In the late 1820s, here are what the images look like. This is the, the uh, uh, not the Birch series, but a very, uh, th almost three decades later, the Athens of America depicted in relatively small, uh, but in very uh, skillfully done uh, engravings on steel by a team of artists. Just about everybody who was anybody in Philadelphia in the 1820s worked on these. Next, please. We were uh, lucky enough to have uh, to, to make this collection not more complete, 
but provide context for it, as uh, collectors and uh, curators often do, often try to do, uh, where we found an opportunity to purchase and add to the collection studies and wash drawings, and uh, you'll see in the case uh, uh, some of that. So it's a not uh, as much completion of a collection as building context and pulling a thread and taking it uh, farther through uh, acquisitions. Next slide, please. Here's the, uh, our two studies um, or wash drawings for the uh, Unitarian Church at 10th uh, by, I believe, John Haviland at 10th and uh, uh, Locust Street. Uh, it's long gone. And uh, we don't know who the funeral uh, is for, but uh, that's something I've always wanted to put, put, a, put a little bit of time in. And now that I have summers a little lighter than I once did, I could probably do that. Uh, next slide, please. And uh, so you see that the, the, the group, actually this is not the full group, uh, but it, it's, it's all but one, uh, which provides context for that uh, the story of that building and the story of that print. It's no longer just about the, the print, it's about about the building. Next, please. Uh, Slate Roof House is a good uh, example. Well, the library company purchased from John Moran, the photographer on the right, uh, his album in 1870, and uh, about uh, a few decades ago, we added the Breton drawing, uh, watercolor, done for the uh, Watson um, Annals of Philadelphia, and you'll see uh, the Breton case in the other room. And so it's more context about the building in this case, um, documentation of the place. It's not just about the image. Next, please. And then as long as we're talking about Moran and building connections and drawing threads out, uh, when in 1982 in the Brenner collection we acquired um, Robert, well, Robert Newell, that meant to be over on the right, uh, Robert Newell, 19, uh, rather 1875, and what this illustrates is not about the building, but about the art of photography. There's John Moran, the artist photographer, uh, being a few years later emulated by Robert Newell, the commercial photographer, and I use this as an example, and I have for some time, of where uh, an image maker goes out to get a likeness of a building, to get an image of it, and one who is creating a, a photographic work of art. And uh, uh, Robert Newell just was not as concerned with uh, the composition as much as John Moran, and it becomes very evident in studies like this, in comparisons like this. Again, it's context. It's not about completion. In fact, you get to a point where you can't be complete. Um, there is no such thing as complete completion. N next slide, please. There would be no way to, for instance, bring together all the photographs the 322 photographers exhibited at the Centennial Exhibition in, in Photography Hall in 1876, but uh, uh, we have on the left uh, upstairs a, uh, a carte de visite uh, of Marcus Aurelius Root. You have to say his whole name when you, when you say his name. And uh, in 1979, uh, the, the print room acquired 1,500 images because if you're not um, able to be uh, 
complete. Uh, you could you could provide context um, from now till the cows come home, and uh, and I just had a great time being able to be be a part of that for several years. Uh, photography was a wide open area. Next slide, please. Uh, but Marcus Aurelius Root, as the first curator of the history of photography in Philadelphia, managed to put together for the centennial a retrospective view of the daguerreotype. No one else had done this before. And uh, the copy of a daguerreotype, which is a salt print copy that's upstairs in the print room, uh, is, as you might be able to see in the center, the original daguerreotype of it, in the center of the case, one down from the top. And I've looked closely enough, take my word for it, it's uh, Rembrandt Peel. And if you look at the very lower left of the case, you'll see John McAllister, Jr. Uh, and that's in the Carson Collection at the Library of Congress. So it is possible to provide... Uh, uh, to, to achieve completion of that case, although I doubt you'll ever see them all in one institution. But um, uh, Root, Root uh, gives us a, uh, something to aspire to, and we know that that case also had other Cornelius daguerreotypes in it, Cornelius being the first studio in Philadelphia opened in the spring of 1840. Next slide, please. And during my time at the library company, we were able to add these two to the collection. I was glad to see one in uh, that graphic uh, compilation we saw earlier. Robert Cornelius daguerreotypes are, there are only are uh, less than 50 of them known to even exist, um, and this was the, really the beginning of the uh, daguerreotype trade in America. Next slide, please. Commercial photography wasn't all bad. Windsor, Taylor, and Brown um, uh, did quite a, quite a lot, and here we have a, an example from the Brenner Collection from 1982, acquired in 1982, uh, which provides a great deal of, uh, of context for the field of photography. Next slide. And uh, this was the sort of thing, and th this is in an album, and it would be found in the hotel lobbies and salespeople, uh, purchasers for companies and sh shops around the country would... Uh, come and buy supplies just the way, the same way Meriwether Lewis came to Philadelphia in 1804 to get supplies. Next slide, please. Um, I just love this one, and there is, and I, I'm not going to show it, but a uh, lithograph of this same marble yard uh, up on, I believe it's Brown Street, in, in, um, um, just north of Spring Garden. Next slide, please. Uh, if you're providing context, you're building the story, you want to tell the founding side of the story very well. And we had a wonderful opportunity, and I know the last exhibit got Philadelphia Gothic pulled out and exhibited some in the Robert Montgomery Bird case. Um, there were uh, the great-grandson of the photographer, Robert Montgomery Bird, um, uh, sold the library company these, and they existed nowhere else. They weren't even known to exist how we knew about Bird was that Root, the fellow who put together that case, uh, wrote about uh, Bird uh, mentioning him as a pioneer of early photography in his 1864 book, The Camera uh, and the Pencil. 
and uh, I had kept an eye out for the who is this bird fellow who was a photographer. We know other birds, and it turned out that, in fact, it was the same as the writer. Uh, so when we were offered this collection, we put two and two together and were able to uh, add this collection. Next slide, please. And then there's William Rao back in 1979. And this sort of scares me when uh, you, know, you look back and you, you, you say, I really haven't changed a bit. Um, uh, I believe I wrote this line, a, a more prominent place in photographic history is Du Rao. Uh, not knowing at all that this institution would become the repository for the Pennsylvania Railroad collection, two images you see below. Uh, and I uh, ended that paragraph saying, we expect Rao to be collectible. Ah, uh, well. Uh, and, uh, and well worth the, the effort. Next slide, please. Uh, but putting, and, and, and this exhibit puts a priority not on completion, which seems more evasive than ever. The more we know, the less you can actually achieve. But it does put a real priority on context. And as I mentioned to John recently, this exhibit is the perfect argument for those acquisitions. It makes so much sense when you say, you had this, you had this, of course you have to have that. That's exactly what a curator would do to make the case for an acquisition, saying, we have these three or four things. This completes the story. The story, not the collection. The story is advanced one more chapter, one more paragraph, whatever it may be. And I think this exhibit does that. Next slide, please. In it, you'll see not uh, the uh, image on the right, but I just couldn't resist putting this in. Uh, the uh, uh, printed piece on the left, uh, one of the earliest um, Philadelphia printed pieces the library company has. It's uh, um, from the late 1680s. The very first was uh, the Historical Society's uh, um, first almanac. Um, which Bradford printed, Calendarium Pennsylvaniense. And that uh, is, happens to be, on, as the HSP rare books are, if it still uh, is the case as it was when I left upstairs. And so here we are in a building with several really excellent, many excellent examples of Bradford printing. Now I have to point out that the uh, little blacked out area, uh, the very first printing uh, the first book printed in Philadelphia is also the first book censored in Philadelphia. Uh, that said Lord Penn, and Bradford kept running into trouble with the Quakers, eventually moving to New York, um, and this was the beginning of, uh, I, I think, the very beginning of his uh, running afoul of the Quakers. Next slide, please. This is just a wonderful piece that was in the Snyder acquisition. And this was not owned by Martin Snyder, but by Julius Frederick Saxon, who is the uh, son of uh, a German immigrant who worked for Cornelius and was photographed by Cornelius. And so that connection provides more context, more layers of information. Uh, Saxa wrote in the 1890s, early daguerreotype days, featuring uh, the story of Cornelius, and told a whole lot more than, uh, than, um, than Root had ever done. So it looks like, and it is, uh, the first uh, religious treatise uh, written in the New World. Um, 
in Philadelphia, I'm sorry, and, and it's printed in, in Europe, um, and uh, Coster was one of the folks who came over with Kelpius and lived in the Wissahickon. Um, but it's much more than that when you look at the full story uh, in the way it was owned and shared over the years. Next slide, please. Um, and, of course, this takes us back to the Cornelius context, back to photography, back to other lines of inquiry. Next, please. So the exhibit talks, too, about uh, the Breton drawings, and Breton was this illustrator of early and uh, the antiquarian side of Philadelphia, uh, there being the um, in the middle of Market Street at 2nd, the uh, first city hall, um, which, uh, next slide, please, was demolished in 1837, and these two lithographs are there. You see in the upper left the birch image, a detail of the birch image, which is not in the show, but I thought I'd provide that for more context. I wonder whether this isn't the fir very first image on the right of a building being demolished in Philadelphia. Um, and I, it reminds me of Penny Batchelor, uh, the late architect, uh, our restoration of architect of, Pen of uh, Independence Hall, who photographed in the 1950s the demolition of the Frank Furness banks on Chestnut Street with a similar feel. Next slide, please. The child subscription book, which is in the show, I've opened it to a not a very pretty page here, but it says, and I, I transcribed it, new series, Number four, uh, four numbers, each uh, four plates at $1 per number. Subscribers to the Antiquities of Philadelphia, March 1831. It may be that the 17 signatures weren't enough for Childs to issue what he intended to come out with. And I wonder whether the Marion meeting, which he did include in the uh, Child's views that uh, uh, that he did publish wasn't part of that next series that never was finished, and you know what it would have some of the candidates that it would have included, including the uh, the uh, uh, demolition of the of the uh, uh, town hall, the city hall that we just saw. Next slide, please. That takes us back to uh, the uh, Unitarian Church down below. Why am I showing you uh, Latrobe's pump house at Center Square? Because Haviland reused the columns when the pump house at Center Square was demolished in 1828, and there you have this renewing uh, resource, uh, the Athens of America taking yet another turn. And uh, so that it, it's not a, about completeness. It's, 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 it's more than context. It's about... It's about information connecting and flowing. In fact, it feels, as we go through this, very much like the Internet itself, except in real life. Next slide, please. And all kinds of things flow from that. You look at uh, the upper right, a detail of the graph center square plan, the pump house in center square. Well, that's not the, the last time that a square was turned into a circle. Down at the lower right, you have Grebert's this is at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, Brebert's uh, turning Logan Square into a circle off-center, just as Graff did, in order to create the illusion of symmetry. Next slide, please. 
as long as we're on center square, the um, uh, David Johnson Kennedy image, which is just a wonderful thing, and uh, next slide, uh, a detail of it uh, up against uh, a photograph of City Hall under construction just to um, build out the story a little bit more. And, of course, I cannot get past this without pointing out Central High School in the upper right of the, uh, of the watercolor. Next slide, please. So there are many other ways to look at these collections, look at these acquisitions, and make connections and see that we're pulling threads, we're building context, we're um, uh, providing opportunities for future collections to be built and understood in many different ways. Next slide. So we could look back and perhaps look forward. Um, I'd like to think that version 1.0 is to complete a collection. Version 2.0 is to contextualize it. And what do we want to accomplish in version 3.0? After all, whatever we do now is not going to be the same as in the future as it is now. Our assumptions will change. Our, uh, our successors will uh, um, have different priorities than we do just the way we have different priorities than our, the people we uh, uh, replaced. Next slide. So let's take a look at some of the characteristics of each period. And I'm not sure I have this exactly right. This is an exercise that uh, the more the merrier. But, uh, you know, back in 1949, it was about expertise and uh, a, a building a static collection, uh, establishing value. Um, ownership, yes, but not necessarily institutional. It's about originals. It's, it's, it's really related to a very narrow audience. Uh, it's very much object-based, and uh, it's about what you have at the end, whereas now we're not entirely there, but seem to be moving uh, in an area where it's not... It's, it, 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 enthusiasm is more important than, than expertise. If you care, that's and, of course, I say this as someone who teaches uh, a lecture with 129 undergraduates. If you care, that's, that's, that's great. You don't have to be an expert yet. Um, and and uh, the dynamic give and take of information, uh, not establishing value, but expanding value, access in many different ways. It's okay to work from a copy. You don't have to have the original access will uh, enable you to have a copy. And, of course, that broadens constituency. It makes it about discussion. And meaning is not something that we can say, that's it. It becomes iterative. Next slide. So, well, this got a little mucked up there. But uh, <laughs> as if the future is, was going to be clear anyway, right? Um, where uh, completeness, context, community, okay. Completeness goes with 1949, context with 1979, and uh, community and connectivity um, is where we are now or where we're going. And the question is, what's next? Let's hope the next slide comes up good. There we go. Okay. So we can begin to project where it's all headed. Uh, on the left is what you saw just a moment ago. On the right... Um, I would say we can't say where we're going, but
but we can define policies that might help us get there. Just the same way we, w we can't say in 19, folks could not say in 1949 what would be acquired in 2009, but they could say, well, here's what we think is important. And I would like to think this extended version of a five-year plan to embrace ideas and opportunities, not all of them, but uh, new ideas, innovative ideas, that is acceleration, and we know that uh, library land has always been very uh, strong with technology, more so than I think any other cultural uh, cluster, um, and that's good, but it, uh, and that is a constant adjustment. Facilitate sharing. Uh, as someone who teaches, I need to be able to, to, to have access. I need to be able to have it quickly when I need it. Uh, 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 the idea, as I recently did, and I was so glad I did this, uh, could not find online a great image of the John Sloan 1901 oil painting east side of City Hall. Just a wonderful uh, painting, and it's in a museum in Ohio. And it took two weeks to get a copy. They wouldn't email it. They did waive it for teaching purposes, and I made it as my my, my uh, wallpaper on my computer. I stare at it before I open up a, a, a software because I just love it so much, and it, it's been there now for several weeks. It may never go away. Um, and it was in my student's exam on Friday, too. Um, uh, uh, let, um, let's go back one, please. I'm sorry. And uh, then you see some of the other things that we we might want to do. I'm not going to presume to say what these policies should be, but there's a suggestion here. Uh, build alliances. Focus on public programming. All these things are being done, but to uh, make them eat, not considered outreach, but part of the key core program. Interactive, not just iterative. Next slide. And I see some things being done along those lines. Now, the image on the lower right, you may remember if you picked up the inquiry yesterday. You don't have to bind them together at the end of the year. Uh, Pennsylvania Hall. I then went and looked up Pennsylvania Hall and Library Company on Google, and what came up was this image, but nothing more. Whereas Jane Johnson, when the historical marker is installed, I hope on July 18th, which is Jane Johnson Day, um, and people look it up, or the Inquirer writes a story about it, they'll link to the Phil Lipsansky's uh, short story uh, called The Liberation of Jane Johnson, which has been online now for several years. And, of course, I'm sure gets a lot of traffic, but will a whole lot more when that uh, moment happens, when she becomes much more of a household word. Many of you may know that Jane Johnson was the subject of Lorraine Carey's book, uh, the Price of a Child. Um, uh, uh, the name was changed for that novelization, but uh, the real story is actually uh, even much more exciting. Not that uh, Lorraine's book uh, isn't wonderful. Next slide, please. Why am I showing you a pen fruit in, on Frankfurt Avenue? This is uh, Betsy Manning's photograph. Betsy may be here. Uh, there she is. Betsy um, uh, and I did an, a small exhibit in um, a hallway in American Studies at Temple. Um, and uh, Betsy has been photographing modern buildings that are fall below the radar. 
uh, in and around Philadelphia and has photographed hundreds of these buildings that are interesting from that point of view. Why I'm showing you this in the context of this talk is that uh, I didn't want to just do a little exhibit without something online. I put together very quickly with Betsy a, a blog called Architectural Wallflowers. And uh, when Inga Safran recently wrote about it and included a link to it, in one day we had almost 7,000 views of that blog. And just that week, uh, well, no, uh, that week there were 9,000. And um, uh, so far in its short history, there's been over 14,000. Now, my son, who's 13, started a blog called Beetle Dude Weekly. Uh, last summer, and he's had almost 40,000 views. So that's where people are. He's, he hasn't even added a new post since uh, December. Um, so he, when we talk about 2039, I think we should uh, immediately think of, of, of migrating to online. And, of course, so much of that is already happening. Next slide, please. Uh, if it, uh, someone once told me that the late Pope said, if it isn't on television, it doesn't exist, although I cannot confirm that. Um, if it, I, I, I'm sure I'm not the first to, to suggest that if it isn't on the Internet, it doesn't exist. And although these numbers are a little mucked up, uh, what you see is uh, a hierarchy of information profile. And this, of course, is toting, totally meaningless. But I think at the very bottom of, of the list is the Ebenezer Maxwell Mansion, which is probably what we would, might all agree the least um, um, visited, uh, the least high profile. And uh, the New York Historical Society Library of Congress and Museum of, uh, Philadelphia Museum of Art and Smithsonian are among the best. Where do we want the library company to be in this hierarchy of information, of access, of interactivity um, over, over the long haul. Next slide, please. Uh, other projects are helping move in that direction, and this is uh, the library company. Um, uh, this is the documentary film that's being uh, uh, led by Sam Katz and others, and uh, it, 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 it has actually found a presence online much more so than it ever imagined. It was conceived to be uh, a six-hour documentary for public television. Uh, it's finding its webisodes are actually much more, uh, 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 much more accessible, used. Um, and then I look at one, one of those webisodes uh, on the... Uh, Funeral of Lincoln. I don't know if anybody here has seen it. It's on, available online. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. This is, this is top-down, a story where there's a talking head historian telling you about how important Lincoln's funeral was and how the impact of it transformed Philadelphia. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Is this the only story that we can tell? Uh, and wait, should we even be telling it? Uh, aren't there... 20 other people with different points of view about Lincoln in Philadelphia who could put up um, uh, videos on YouTube the way my then 12-year-old son did a, did a uh, short video uh, uh, for a post-it note competition last summer, uh, and there were 10,000 entries to that. Lincoln in Philadelphia means many things to many people, including that webisode, including the, the talking head historian. And so I think we're learning, and the arc is 
the, in, what was intended a year ago, a year and a half ago, is evolving as we speak. Next slide, please. Oh, thank you. I stole this slide, and I didn't realize. This is from a, from a library company presentation. I didn't realize it had the, the uh, bells and whistles. Uh, the, the Philadelphia on Stone project is going to be moving in that direction, too. And I can't speak about it. You'll hear about it in the future. Uh, but this is very much moving in that way. But keeping, keep in mind, I would urge everyone to keep in mind the, uh, the um, characteristics, the values, and goals for the future, the vision for a future. Next one. And sort of where we uh, end up, and I believe this is the last slide, um, is that the, the on, if, if for those, and I don't own one, I wish I did, uh, have an iPhone, the billionth application was downloaded very recently, about last week, by a 13-year-old um, in uh, Connecticut. And it's called Bump. And what it allows you to do is, is turn your, open that application and uh, bump your hand with your iPhone in it with the hand of someone else with their iPhone in it, and information is instantly transferred. And it's now only contact information, but in the immediate future, it's going to be images. It's going to be other forms of data. Uh, yes, this can cause all kinds of issues around copyright, <laughs> but as someone who this year had nearly 300 students, I just relish the opportunities that it presents for learning for engagement and for uh, a future that uh, we can only begin to envision. And that's all I have to say. Thank you.